Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Talita Ferreira. Talita, you're most welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you and your listeners. Great. Talita, something really struck me when I read your website, and it was for a third of my career, I was operating at only half my potential. What woke you up? <laughs> well, I suppose what, what woke me up was understanding over a period of time and over a journey how important people interaction is. But it was only looking back on my career that I really realized that. So at the time, I obviously didn't know I was doing that because otherwise I would have tried to rectify it. But it was a, a couple of events. So if I may elaborate. So in my 20s, the first person that I led told me that I was an awful leader. Oh. But it was the first person outside my accounting articles. So obviously in my articles, I led quite a few teams. I was very lucky that from my second year in articles, quite a few managers had left. So I got responsibility really early on and of quite big teams. But I led them all the way that I liked to be led, you know, quite hands off, quite empowered, quite self-sustaining. And then I left articles and went into industry. And this first person that I led called me an awful leader. And she needed more coaching, more mentoring, more a tutoring approach. And of course, I had not yet learned to adapt my style for an individual. And I think that was quite a, a theme. So when I became a CFO for the first time, it was a dual role. So it was a CFO and chief people officer role. And I was already overwhelmed because I think when you take your first board director's role, it is a bit overwhelming. It was in a different country. So I had grown up in South Africa. I had gone to Munich and then they had sent me to England. So, you know, it's not your home base. It's not where you've grown up and you're just working in this environment. And so there was already all these challenges with taking a board director role and then having HR on top of that. And I suppose I just had to learn to be vulnerable and trust my team and trust those specialists to help me be successful. And that whole process of really throwing myself into what does human resources mean? How do you inspire people? I think until I got to that role, and I really maybe progressed in a two, three years until I was then, you know, doing all sorts of groundbreaking new things within that company. When I got to that point and I looked back, a third of my career was almost gone. And I was kind of like, yes, but was I actually 
at the top of my leadership game? And the answer is no. Interesting, but that could be the same for many people, Talita, starting out. I mean, you only know what you know. Exactly. And if you ask me what my passion is, my passion is to change the business world one analytical mind at a time. (laughs) Because I do believe if you get these analytical professionals to kind of go on that same journey that I went on and understand how powerful the people dimension is and how actually investing more time in it, more growth and development, more attention to it earlier, you can sew up your game and you can so do such more successful projects and bigger projects, which is exactly what happened to me when I learned to, you know, really focus on the people and on on bringing people together and inspiring people to follow. And uh, yes, I always say that's the passion. And I really want to share all of those learnings from those years and, and what I learned to help other people to uh, kind of fast forward their careers, because that's what I believe happens. Oh, I, I agree with you completely. You started out with KPMG. And was there an emphasis on people when you were there? Well, the thing is, as an article clerk, you don't really get taught leadership. You get taught, you know, your specialism. And so I would say from those early days, I don't remember, and it's many, many years ago, but I don't remember having any official leadership training on how to run teams. You kind of learned from the people that you were working for. And if I think about the, you know, I probably worked in a year with 10 or 12 managers. And if I think back now and I think how many of them were good people leaders, there was only two that really stood out for me. And of the two, one hated conflict. So so whenever there was conflict between people, she would never sort that out. So out of 12, I think there was one that I would classify at that time as a really good people leader. So I I don't think one gets trained in the leadership and how one should lead teams. You kind of just fall into it. And I believe that that first girl that I, she was a young girl. I was young as well at the time. But I think that she gave me an amazing gift because she started to make me more aware of the fact that I needed to adapt my style for other people. And, you know, that was the first like conscious thing. And If I hadn't had that, I wouldn't have made that so conscious in my mind to think more about leadership. And I remember going to my father-in-law at the time. He he was a head of personnel in the Defence Force. So lots and lots of experience in terms of leading HR teams and people teams. And so he taught me a few things of what he knew and suggested a few, I think at that time, it was still tapes to listen to. And so that's where my leadership journey started, tapes, books, things like that, to try and improve myself. Amazing. And for people now, if I don't know whether it's the same now, I went through articles as well, and I can definitely relate to a lot of what you've said. But for people now, There is definitely more emphasis on getting the people side right, but to analytical minds or technical minds, we tend to think sometimes that's enough, that I've invested so much in getting this far. Yes, I I totally agree with you. But so we can talk about it a little bit later. I did this interview series last year on what makes great leaders. And because I did interview these 27 people and then started talking about the results of the interviews. 
someone said, what do you think is the best advice that you can give in your career? And it's because of that question and, and those interviews, I started really thinking about well, what is that great advice? And I think you have to focus on three pillars to thrive as a, as a leader, as a professional, no matter what you are, whether you're a legal professional, an IT professional, an engineer, it doesn't matter. And the three pillars for me is the first is your specialism. So what is your best business specialism? And you have to, of course, always keep developing in that. And you have to adapt it to your industry and your business, because otherwise you can't do your job very well. So I find lots of people who are really good with the studying, with the knowledge, with the, even after years of, of practice. But if they're not good at adapting that to the industry, to the, to the business, they, they don't shine. So, so they might get the job done, but they don't shine. The second thing is that growth and development of yourself. And a lot of people don't necessarily want to invest in themselves. And, I, you know, there's no judgment here. That's absolutely fine. But I believe if you don't invest in your own growth and development, especially if you be become more and more senior and go into leadership roles, I think you won't have the resilience, the staying power, and you'll always feel like there's something missing if you don't grow and develop yourself. And then the third thing, I like to say that every interaction with your team or with an individual is an opportunity to grow and develop together. And so it's really about growing and developing together as a team. And, you know, I canned all my show and tell meetings, what I call show and tell meetings, weekly team meeting, and everyone would come and say, what are they busy with? And how on track are they with their targets? And and for a while, that was okay. But, you know, all that impact from leading HR made me realize, is this really what we want to talk about? And that's when I changed it into, well, let's talk about what are our strengths, or let's talk about things like our values, or let's brainstorm topics together, or let's discuss challenges together. So I think that third thing, that continual development together as a team or with individuals is extremely, extremely important. And by the way, so I train many, many directors. I work for the Institute of Directors and I train their leadership program. So multiple hundreds of leaders is how many I've now trained in leadership. And I see with many directors that they focus a lot on the first thing and not on the other two. Less, a little bit on the development of themselves, but then really focusing on that interaction and team development and continuously doing that with the team that's not where the focus is. It's more about what are the challenges we face? What are the targets? What are the objectives? And the ones that are super successful are the ones who push the development of the team. And yeah, team is, is where my interest lies most, Talita. And, and I often think we can learn a lot from sport mm -hmm, definitely. Be because of that. And I listen to a sports psychology podcast even because it's really fascinating to, to listen in what they're learning and studying about how teams work together better. And one of the things that interests me a lot is psychological safety and bringing in what you talked about earlier, trust and vulnerability and so on. Is that something that you think people have or need to really foster as well and develop? Oh, I think you've, you've gone to a very, very interesting place. So I remember the Google research 
project Pro, team ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. About, you know, what makes the high performing teams? And then the answer was number one is the psychological safety. And so for, I'd say for the last three years, I've been looking for the real definition. Of course, Amy Cuddy does a lot of work on it and she talks about it a lot. But last year I did a, certif a certification actually in psychological safety with Dr. Timothy Clark. Oh, did you? Um, yeah. He's written that book recently. Yes. 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 It's, it's, it's very good. So, and I've gone on to a couple of his Friday nights is normally his webinar evening and it's, it's very good and they're all um, free. So I can highly recommend those. His company's name is called Leader Factor. And yes, you know, for him, psychological safety is when you don't feel it's expensive to be yourself. So you can be yourself and say what it is you think. And the interesting thing is that we don't have inclusion until you feel like you're safe. And so, you know, it's just very interesting to see how the diversity and inclusion scenario ties back to that. And some of these questions on have you ever been excluded, you know, and it, it's so, so interesting. So I definitely believe that psychological safety and trust is something that we need to build. So I did a masterclass on trust just a couple of weeks ago, where I say the trust comes from three places in an organization. It comes from what's role modeled by the leaders at the top. It comes from the senior leaders in the organization because they're getting those impulses from the top. How do they work with their people? You know, how are they taking that dynamic from the top and working with it? And then the third thing is what's happening inside the teams. So it's about that authenticity of the individual leader and the authenticity, the empathy and the, the logic which is from the Harvard Business Review. So they say we trust individuals based on those three things, their authenticity, their empathy, and their, their logic. And sometimes it's not the logic that it's a problem, that is the problem, it's how we communicate that is the problem. And then of course, in teams, it's all about the psychological safety. So I definitely think that's a, an immensely important thing in an immensely important field. And what I like about Dr. Uh, Tim Clark's uh, explanation is that it's so easy to understand. And it's also so easy to understand why we don't have innovation. So you have the four levels of safety and you won't have the actual challenger safety, which is where the innovation happens until you've gone through all the other stages. So it's, it's really, really interesting. And it, it's kind of really stark for me why we have this problem with inclusion and diversity and innovation at the other end, because we don't really have these these four levels. And if you look back at your own career then, Talita, when you were in organizations, do you think you had teams where you had psychological safety? I, I would say that I had it with my direct reports. Did they have that in all of their teams? I, I don't think so. Were we so aware of the work we need to do to create it? I don't think so. Did we spend enough time on it? I'd also say no, although we spent a lot of time on more values-based, very friendly type culture where people did feel safe to speak up. But did that permeate through all the teams? I don't think so. And also there's, there's a part of it that has to do with the organizational culture. You know, if the organizational culture puts, for instance, the, the directors on a pedestal, there's no way that normal people in an organization are going to feel safe to tell you what they really think. And, you know, some organizations are still very hierarchical. And I would say most of the organizations that I worked in were. 
And so even if I was able to create those conditions within the groups of teams that I led, I wasn't able to create that within the organization as a whole. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think, you know, we look at statistics about staff engagement being very low, and this would be one of the drivers and what you talked about being yourself, that it's okay to be you at work. And I think we start to forget who we are if we can't be ourselves at work. I think that's part of why there's such a huge well-being issue, mental health issues and all sorts of other things. And COVID has has brought that very starkly to the forefront because of mixing the home life and the work life, you know, because of the lockdowns. I think that reality has become quite stark, that you're generally not the same person in both places. And by those two areas now colliding, it's even become more difficult. And I would just always say, if you can't be yourself and you have a, you're wearing a huge corporate mask to fit in, I think the tax on your health long-term can be something that one doesn't really bargain on. Absolutely. I think you're kind of borrowing from the future to, to put keep that shield up. And perhaps qualifications are that shield as well at times, Talita, accountants we can we can use our qualifications as a shield to say well you know this is my job and the people side of it is secondary yeah Brené Brown has a comment that I read the other day and it's something like the thing that holds courageous leadership back is the armor the armor that we wear so so you know that daring leadership that courageous leadership that we want the armor and and it doesn't really fit for us to try to be courageous and with the armor on so what do you do do you take the armor off do you leave the armor on it, it just so resonated with me that the comments because I think so many leaders are held back by um, fear or underlying concerns or uh, trying to control situations or not wanting to look bad and and sometimes the best thing to do is just to say I don't know you know? oh, yes, yes. I, I don't really know and let's work it out together and let's see where we go and you know I can facilitate it and ask a couple of questions and we can see where we go with it and and we'll find the answer together yeah the best example was a CFO two years ago where we were talking about creating an engaging team purpose and she said to me I don't want to create a team purpose with my team because I might get questions that I can't answer and I was kind of like absolutely riveted because I, I, I didn't know how you would, how is it that you're afraid that there are questions that you might not be able to answer? But she was quite, quite forceful about it. I, I can't do this because I, I'll have questions that I can't answer. And especially then with the linkage towards how does my department fit into the whole I discussed it with one of my, what would I say, one of my trusted advisors. And she just said, it says more about her than anything else, you know. And, and that's how I then had to kind of think about that in my mind, is that that's really how it is. If you're afraid that you'll have questions from your team that you can't answer, and then you don't want to dare almost to use Brene Brown's words, I suppose that's your loss. But I think it's also kind of a sad place to be. Yes, and also that armor is getting thicker and higher around you, like your defense mechanisms are, are, it's like what you said earlier about there's something missing, you're not shining, 
but also others won't shine with you and yeah it is it feels sad yes yes yeah because everybody has so much within themselves that it's okay to say I don't know yes I, I think that was my prevailing feeling for her the sadness with because she was looking for something to do with her team and I had just created this course on on it creating an engaging purpose with your team so I had suggested that to her and she'd gone through it and we then had a call to discuss it and she was oh I, I'm so sorry but I can't do this <laughs> and I, I was like why why can't you do it because I won't have all the answers and actually it really took me back I didn't actually know what to say so it was one of those moments where I was totally at a loss for words because I really just didn't know what to say yeah wow well hopefully for herself I hope she sorted out her own career development so let's talk about leadership then Talita because you mentioned doing um, a, a series of interviews with 27 different leaders what types of leaders did you talk to so I spoke to a whole range of people. I spoke to thought leaders in transformation, thought leaders in business partnering, CEOs, main board members, chairman of boards, CFOs, normal finance leaders. I interviewed the man who ran the Queen's household. Really? Yes, I did. So David Walker. Uh, so just really different people. And to understand, is there really a red thread? For great leadership and I, I asked a number of questions I asked what makes a great leader I asked what holds leaders back where should leaders start how important is interaction with the team and then I asked each of them to tell a great story of leadership or an epic fail and those interviews were were so so rich and I'm actually so so happy that I did it at the time I felt like something that I needed to do because it felt like I was pushing this really big boulder up a hill it felt like I was the only one trying to convince people that softer skills are really important. And then I thought, well, why don't I change the question? What, what inspires people? And everyone that I asked, I didn't ask them to give me the textbook answer. So they gave me what they thought really was important, you know, what inspired them personally. And they definitely read threads. And so it really confirmed from all those thousands of leaders that I've mentored, coached, and then the multiple hundreds that I've trained, it, it really confirmed that there is a pattern and there is a, you know, there is something that makes a great leader. And, and the great news is we don't need to be born great leaders. We can learn. And are you going to help us learn? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, so the amazing thing that happened uh, from that is I, well, first I had all the interviews and then I started to talk about it because I also like to test it. So I, I did four or five speaking gigs to different networks. So directors networks, accountants networks, just to try and see, you know, what are the type of questions that people ask on it. And then I realized that there are really seven shifts to this transformation of, of great leadership. And then I've created five archetypes of a leader. And I'm in the process at the moment of having all the content accredited, CPD accredited. And then later in the year, I will launch an eight-week program. So two, two hour sessions every week with my best toolkit and tips and blueprint to actually then make that shift or to make it more conscious because a lot of it is just making things more conscious. We've heard about it, we've thought about it, but we haven't really made it conscious. And then my other 
thing is always, I, I used to love going on training courses because I was always a, a keen, continuous learner. But what I found was most difficult was then translating that to your team because you come back from the training and you're so behind on your work. So anything that I design, I design that you immediately share that learning as well, that, you know, there's a, a toolkit for you to actually practice it. Because apply I mean, it. Yes. Because, that, yeah, that's the important bit, isn't it? And, and apply it with other people because many times in training courses, they ask you to sit and think about how does this apply to you? And so that is almost the application, but it's not the practice. You know, it's not the, okay, now I'm going out there and I'm going to go share something that I've learned or speak to the team about it. And I think that's almost as important as the other two pieces. Otherwise, the learning doesn't ever go anywhere. And that's what I always felt such a shame is that the time just was never there and they were never set up that way. So I want to do better in that. <laughs> you made a very interesting point about conscious us being conscious of things. And, and, and it almost brings us back to the beginning of our interview when you said you woke up to not using your full potential. Where does the consciousness lapse or how do we stand in our own way of being conscious of what's there for us? I think because we've never been taught to be reflective really. So, so I think there's nothing in your university degree or in your articles that teaches you to be reflective. Everything is just meet the targets, meet the deadlines, analyze the numbers. And I think lots of finance departments even struggle to analyze the numbers because you, you know, they're always trying to put together the numbers and then sorting out all the mistakes in the numbers. And then is there enough time then to analyze to see what are the numbers telling us? So, so it's always against the clock. It's always against. And so those targets, deadlines, challenges are so driving us that we don't really stop to reflect. And I think that reflective practice is probably the most important thing that we can give ourselves, which is probably why it's the fifth leadership archetype is exactly that reflective leader that stops every now and again to reflect on what's really going on here, asking more powerful questions with the team. You know, are we looking at the right priorities? Is this the right challenge? Why will we fail? I think all of that, the, the asking ourselves, our teams, more questions, that doesn't really happen. Or sitting quietly every day and saying, you know, how did today go? What am I really proud of? What do I think I need to adjust a little bit? Because I think it's, it's, it's also not about us failing at things. It's just that we need to adjust a little bit. And the minute you reflect more, the minute you're more conscious, then you will adjust because no one wants to do badly. No, absolutely. Nobody does. And so that's one of the archetypes. Are you going to be able to tell us about some of the others? Yes. So the first one is very much about an agile mindset and being more purpose-driven. So the agile mindset is far more than just the growth mindset. It's far more about, about, about continuous learning, about focusing on people, focusing on customer and focusing on purpose at three levels. And I always say there are three levels to purpose because there's the organizational overall purpose, but then there's your purpose as a leader. What is my leadership purpose? I remember going to a training course one year and again, I, I probably was already leading for 10 years when I went to this course. 
And we were asked to define what our leadership purpose was. And I was a little bit at a loss at the beginning, like, what is my leadership purpose? I really needed the full time to, to really think about this. So I always believe it's very important to think about our own purpose, that organizational purpose, and then what's your department's purpose? And for finance, it's not about putting together the, the numbers or the reports or it's really about what are we here? How do we add value? Why are we here? And what is the difference that we make? But we so rarely think about those things. We, we're not challenged to. I think that's the other thing, isn't it? You said when you got asked that first, what is my leadership purpose? You hadn't thought about it. So I think that's the other thing. That's why it's good for people to go to training courses also or attend webinars because these questions come up. You go, oh, mm. that's new for me. Mm. Mm. And what about the other types? So the next one is the connected influential leader. And that is the leader who kind of leads from the inside out. The leader who understands themselves far better and once they understand and connect to themselves better, that's the way to then connect to others. And learning to suspend judgments, unconditional respect for difference, things like that, that no one ever really makes us think about, but are so important, especially if you want to have impact and influence. It's all about connecting to people at a different level. So that's the second one. The third one is about being more strategic. Because I think a, a big problem with many, many leaders is they're not strategic enough and they don't know how to drive change. Mm. And everything that we're doing is about change. If one really thinks about it, you know, that's where we are now. Always, though. I, I think you're always changing. Everything's changing. <laughs> All the time. Exactly. All the time, yeah. And so it's understanding strategy more, understanding how do I actually drive change as a leader? How do I get people on board? How do I inspire people, no matter where I'm sitting in a hierarchy, whether I'm at the top of the tree, whether I'm at the bottom of the tree, I need to inspire, I need to understand almost like what's coming around the corner and what's happening. Otherwise, I might just live for now and not be prepared for what's coming, which is you know why so many of us get caught out in those leadership positions with things that almost escalate before you realize that they're there and and actually if you look in hindsight you could have anticipated them a lot earlier but it's again that reflection so and then the the last one before that is the responsible before the reflective leader which i've already spoken about is the responsible impactful leader and something that i think is that was throughout the interviews was there, but at a far more subliminal level. So it wasn't always called out for exactly what it is, but we have a huge opportunity responsibility as finance professionals also in terms of meaning, in terms of the environment, in terms of helping our organizations to see further than just where we look now. There are so many opportunities that will come in the next 5, 10, 15 years, years if we just think things like green financing, like the CEO of BlackRock who's saying, you know, it's, it's his responsibility to make sure that the investments he makes are responsible, responsible to stakeholders, communities. So, so that whole ESG reporting, wider impact, understanding, that's going to come quicker than we think. And if, if we just as finance professionals think, oh, well, that's just a reporting thing, 
actually that's the thing that can differentiate a business and where we can really show our value. And it's, it's thinking about things like the circular economy. And it came through quite a lot in terms of purpose, in terms of socially responsible organizations, in terms of just thinking about things differently. And I think it's also a generational thing. So for me, it's, it's preempting that we start to think about those things. You know, because I think as as leaders, if if we don't start to think about those differences, then it's almost like you always just judge it. You know, so many people say that millennials are just the entitled generation. Well, well, that's not the way to look at it, is it? If they're the customers of the future, it doesn't matter what we want to call them. We need to think about it and their care for the planet might be the right thing. We might just need to open our minds from where we were before in like a pure profit dimension. Totally. Yeah. yeah, because purpose, planet, profit, people, I mean, we need them all. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's also something for me when I, it's, it's one of the modules that we train at the Institute of Directors. And it's always interesting, many organizations still do the box ticking. And many directors say, that's where we really need to focus. We need to focus more on wider stakeholders, not just the shareholder, the wider stakeholders, the impact on not just doing the charity work, but, you know, almost figuring it out in terms of all our processes. And that's where I believe finance has such a vital role to play. The, the unfortunate thing is, it's, it's the thing that all directors want to focus the least on, because of course, it's all about today's problems. And and, and I don't think it's that they want that. I think they buy into the concept. It's just in my limited hours, can I do that too? So I think that's going to be one that will probably bite us a little bit too late. So I think it's more helping people to be more conscious about it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's almost like what COVID did to hybrid working or remote working. <laughs> you know, you don't want something like that to force people to change their ways. But it is, you need to bite the bullet at some stage as an organization to equip yourself better for the future, I guess. And, and I think we totally underestimate the whole zero carbon emission thing, because there are lots of companies who are saying, yes, we'll be zero carbon by 2025, 2030, whatever there is. There's a lot of work to be able to do that. I'm also a chair of an audit committee. There's a lot of governance work to make sure that we, we can actually measure all those things. And just, just one very, very simple example that someone mentioned that made it so stark for me. A lot of organizations always say we want the cheapest flights. Let's make sure when you book your flights, you've, you've taken the most cheapest flights or, you know, it's sometimes not about the time or anything else. But what if that flight's carbon emission? isn't where it should be. Are you then going to buy carbon credits to offset it or use your credits from somewhere else in your business? So, so it, it will take an, an, or bring a huge shift in how we think as finance professionals because you know our cost controlling might not work with net carbon zero. But if we don't start thinking about it and thinking about it early, it's again, it will be something that surprises us and all of a sudden, you know, the governance is not there and we don't understand it. So I think that's such an important area to start focusing on and focusing on early. Totally. And I always have this argument with people about value for money does not mean cheapest price. Mm. Actually, you want to make sure you're getting the best that we can get and make sure that it's taking things that aren't, like you said, you know, there's carbon emissions are wrong or whatever or not 
you know, going to help the planet. But yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to do. And But it's interesting what you say about finance professionals as well, I think, Talita, because a lot of this is ripe to be set for the future. Not every question is answered. So people can take on some of these questions and help to set the reporting up for the future. And that's why I think we have such a an important role to play there. You know, exactly with this example now of, of flights, you know, it's, it's pointing that out maybe and saying that maybe the policies around that aren't on sound or there will be other far more applicable examples in, in, in your individual organizations once you start looking at it. And it's, it's just opening our mind to how that net carbon zero fits with everything else we do and the ambitions we have. The other thing is if you're an organization who thinks, oh, net carbon zero, we're not doing that. Well, the problem is, will you be able to be a supplier to some companies who've then bought into that? Because if they've bought into net carbon zero and you're not net carbon zero as a supplier, you might not make it onto the supplier list anymore. So <laughs> it's all of those things that, you know, need to be worked out, thought about, and 10 years is not a long time. Or for, for some, it's not even, you know, it's, it's four years to 2025. And lots of organizations are saying we're on a very ambitious path to be net zero by 2025, 2027, 2030. That's not far away. It really isn't. Wow. One thing that sprung to mind for me was, was there anything that really, really stood out in all of those 27 interviews? So I mentioned Sir David Walker, who ran the Queen's household, and his interview was phenomenal for me on, on multiple points. When I asked him about his passion, he spoke about culture. So you don't often get someone when you ask them, what are you passionate about? And they speak about culture. And he made the point of saying that, and I can't remember his exact words, but he made the point of, you need to worry about the culture you want and be consciously creating it. And everything else you, you can kind of leave, but make sure that you're focusing on what it is you want in your culture. Because if you're not, it's going to grow organically and you might be surprised with what you get, which was uh, amazing. And so that was even before I asked him about what makes a great leader. And then when I asked him about what makes a great leader, he immediately turned it around and said, it's not about the great leader. It's about how the leader can be a great servant. Everyone else followed the script and kind of answered me. And he was like, well, I just think it's the wrong question, which was also amazing because that's exactly, it's about that ser servant leadership. So that was quite phenomenal. And then Zara Barilalumi, who was one of the global Accenture directors, it was at the time I interviewed her at the time around Black Lives Matters. And one of her most profound comments to me was they saw the difference in the, the comp companies that they were dealing with. And she was saying to me, the companies who said nothing, they were the ones who were most starkly affected, where people are looking and going, well, what is your opinion? And she said, the companies that said, we're not perfect, we're working on this, we'll keep you informed. And it was just also such a stark reality of being a leader. Even if we don't know, it's about saying we don't have it perfect. We don't know what we need to do, but boy, oh boy, we're going to intend to do better and we're going to try our best. And I suppose that's, that's the thing about showing strong leadership. It's about that. I don't know, but I'm going to work on it and I'm going to need you to support me to get the answer. So with a very topical issue out there showing that leadership is really about that 
taking charge of even when we don't know what it is we don't know and just owning up and saying we'll do better and we'll try our best fantastic i love that i've written down don't know as you were talking there and also the message i think from the previous interview you talked about almost it's culture yeah con what you consciously want and create it but also your own life it's a great message too that you know think about what you really want what you consciously want and go and create it exactly exactly i think we could keep going talita but <laughs> there's so much in this episode that maybe we will stop right here but how does someone connect with you talita or find you so i'm very uh, active on linkedin and my linkedin address is talita ferreira at acs so but you can just look for me if you google me you'll find me and i also have the finance inspired for success is the portal that I have for all my training and there's lots of uh, free content in there as well for anyone who's interested and then there's the global leadership hypothesis with all these free interviews that I did with short trailers and that's GL hypo so www.glhypo.com so just GL hypo and one can see these fabulous interviews from all these thought leaders and CEOs and wonderful people and diversity and inclusion, because that's what's there. There's a great group of individuals. Yes, I, I, I try to really have people from all over the world, different networks and uh, different ethnic groups, gender balanced, and really also to try and get multiple insight in the, in the series. So yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Talita. It's been it's been packed with great <laughs> conversation. Thank you and insights. You're very, very welcome, Susan. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I loved it too. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.